Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. For the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Robert Boynton. Our episode today pays tribute to our longtime fellow, Deirdre Baer, who passed away last weekend at age 84. The author of six biographies and two memoirs, Baer received numerous honors for her work, including the National Book Award for her 1978 biography of Samuel Beckett. Baer's biographical subjects include Anais Nin, Simone de Beauvoir, C.G. Jung, Saul Steinberg, and Al Capone. Her final book, Parisian Lives, Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir, and Me, revisited her beginnings as a biographer and her encounters with two of her larger-than-life subjects. At a January 2020 luncheon, Bear looked back at the start of her celebrated career. It's a real pleasure to welcome Deirdre Bear today. The book she's discussing is Parisian Lives, Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir, and me. It is a lively account of the seven years when she worked closely with Samuel Beckett and Simone de Beauvoir to write their respective biographies, and it was published by Nantalese Doubleday in November. So please welcome Deirdre Bear. I'm especially privileged to be here today because this is where this book started, right here in the Institute. If you've seen my book, you see that I dedicate it to Eileen Ward, who brought me into the Institute in 1990. She was my mentor and my friend. And I promised this book to her at her 80th birthday, which was sometime, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. I promised that I would write it. And at the time, I envisioned that it would be a very short book, primarily for other biographers, that it would be a chapter about each of my books. And every time I propose it to my agent, she would say, nobody cares about that. Nobody's going to read that book. People want to know about Beckett and Beauvoir. And of course, she was absolutely right, because everywhere I went, dinner parties, cocktail parties, tell us, people would say, what were they really like? <laughs> what didn't you write in the book? Tell us all about them. And of course, I couldn't do that. The time wasn't right. It was at a time when we were not as respectful decorum as we are today, shall we just put it that mildly. And so I evaded the book. Once again, it became an institute book in the sense that I remember hearing Philip Lowe Pate several years ago when he talked about the memoir that he wrote about his mother. And he said, it took me 31 years to write that book because every time I approached the truth, I backed away from it. And that's exactly what I was doing. Because to write about Beckett and Beauvoir, I would have to write about myself. And who was I in those years? I was a young, naive woman struggling to do all sorts of things. I had been supporting my husband through graduate school at Yale. I had two small children. I was married my senior year in college. And I was one of those women who was trying to do it all, have it all, and be it all, and it wasn't working. 
and eventually suffering burnout from a journalism career, I saw that the School of the Arts at Columbia University was welcoming nonfiction writers. And I remember the friend of mine who pointed out this story in the New York Times to me, and he said, well, this is what you've been looking for. You can sit on your ass for two years and read novels. And I thought, that's a pretty good deal. I'm going to apply for it. And so they accepted me. And one thing led to another, and I became a graduate student at Columbia University. This was in the early 1970s. And at that time, theory was becoming everything at Columbia. And so there were three or four of us who were looking for the biographical imperative, but we were keeping very quiet. We were keeping this all to ourselves. We weren't telling anyone. And um, I, Nancy Milford was uh, a colleague and a friend of mine. So I had Nancy to talk to about my, but Mary Dearborn was there. And so was Lyndall Gordon. And they have since become friends of mine, and they have told me that they were wandering alone, keeping their interest in biography very quiet and to themselves. So I remember when I was finishing my degree, when I went to my advisor, John Unterecker, and I told him that I really thought that Beckett criticism had come to a dead end, that Beckett was not just the poet of alienation, isolation, and despair, Beckett had a lot of other qualities. I had found them because I had made an intense study of Joyce for my master's essay, and I had become quite knowledgeable about all things Irish, from history to politics to literature. And I knew that Beckett was writing about actual places, in the early fiction in particular. And I knew that he was writing about real people, the so-called Dublin characters. And I thought, why hasn't anybody but me noticed this? And because I had journalism training, I thought in terms of perhaps a profile, a long profile for a magazine, but better still, I knew that I wanted to do a full-length biography. I looked at myself as Joan of Arc on her white horse riding in to save the day, to open up criticism to all sorts of new areas, and to introduce Beckett to the world. Well, I was in for a rude awakening, but that came later. So what did I do? John Unterrecker said, well, don't you think you want to tell Beckett what you're doing before you start doing it? And so I did. I wrote him a letter. One letter. One letter. This is important. And it took me, I think, a good 10 days, maybe two weeks to write this letter. What did I tell him? Did I tell him about myself, who I was? What did I say? How did I say it? So I finally, in a fit of desperation, sent off the letter. The mail in those days was never so fast between Paris and the United States. Less than a week after I sent the letter, I had his reply. And because so many of the people have asked me what it said, I memorized it. <laughs> the first paragraph was written across a sheet of the very thin paper that he wrote on onion skin, I guess we call it. And it went from right to left in straight lines. Dear Mrs. Bear, my life is dull and without interest. The professors know more about it than I do. It is best left unchampioned. And then scrawled from lower left to upper right in much larger handwriting was one sentence without any punctuation. 
Any information I possess is at your disposal. If you come to Paris, I will see you. (laughs) (laughs) And so off I went to Paris. Only he wasn't there. (laughs) He had gotten sick, and his wife had taken him to Tunisia to recuperate. Eventually, we connected in the Hotel du Danube, which in those days was a grungy place where poor graduate students stayed on the Rouge Jacob, and now it's very fashionable and very expensive, and I can't afford to stay there anymore. He came, as he said he would, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, like Murphy, on the dot, punctual. That was Samuel Beckett. There was all sorts of commotion going on around us, two Portuguese Maids were fighting over an old treadle sewing machine, and there was a great raucous, and I was chattering away nervously, because that's what I do when I get nervous. And he and I sat down at a tiny, one of those tiny little metal ice cream tables with those ice cream chairs that used to be in old drugstores. And he was sitting directly across from me, and we're both tall and long-legged, and our legs were touching under the table, and it was very awkward. And he was staring straight ahead at me, very disconcerting. And I didn't realize why until later when I found out that he had just had surgery for cataracts, and he had to sit and look directly at you, or he couldn't see you. And so this is the first thing that he said to me. So... You're the one who's going to reveal me for the charlatan that I am. (laughs) Well, how do you answer something like that? We got through that meeting, that rather awkward meeting, and the next day we met again, and we went across the street. We went to the uh, little tabac and sat down, and we started talking. And he said, how did I plan to write this book? He never called it a biography. He'd always say, this story of my life or this project we have undertaken together or this task which we are about to embark upon. Several days later at the second meeting, we were sitting in this tabac and he asked me how I was going to go about writing the book. I didn't know anything about biography because I had never read it in graduate school. I had read the classics on my own as an undergraduate. I had read Plutarch and Suetonius and Vasari and things like that, and I had read uh, Knocker and Einhardt on Charlemagne, and in graduate school I had looked at Froude on Carlyle and Lockhart on Walter Scott, but I hadn't really read biography. So when he said, well, how was I going to go about it, I didn't know what to say. So I said the first thing that came to my mind, well, of course I'll talk to you, I'll interview you, and you'll tell me everything I want to know, and you'll make all sorts of documents and letters and manuscripts available, and then of course I'll speak to all of your friends and all your associates in your family who know you, and you'll tell them uh, that they should help me, and that's how I'll write the book. And he sat there for a very long time, and then he said, well, I suppose you can do that, He said, I will tell my family and friends that I will neither help nor hinder you, a phrase that has come to haunt me, uh, because I put it in the introduction to the biography. And then he said, my enemies will find you soon enough. And indeed they did. (laughs) The next thing that happened was, as we were sitting down, 
I was again fussing because I was nervous and I thought to get into the conversation, I'll ask him about Trinity College. And so it was a throwaway question. When you were a student and later when you were on the faculty at Trinity, where did you live? What part of the campus did you live in? And so he rattled off a series of numbers. I lived in hallway X and room Y and so on and so forth. And because I have severe math anxiety, I was very busy whipping up pencil, tape recorder, and paper to write all that down. And he jumped up and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm getting ready to interview you. Take notes. Never, never. You must never put out a pencil, a paper. We are two friends having a conversation. And that is how we will proceed. You must never indicate that anything pertaining to work is here. And then he's the non sequitur, the thing that really threw me. And you must never, ever tell anyone that I see you, that I talk to you. Well, I found out why years later, because so many people had asked to write his books and very famous biographers and very famous critics and scholars, and he had refused them all. And then I found out also why, in the beginning, he went along with me because he didn't take me seriously. At that time, I had a very, very bad, what we called frosting on the hair, you know, where highlights, and the hairdresser had made these huge splotches of platinum blonde that took forever to grow out. It really looked awful. And Beckett apparently went to dinner parties with his good friends who all told me this story. And he would say, good God, the woman has striped hair. <laughs> Well, all that changed as we went along, and he knew that he had to take me seriously. And the book progressed. I had wonderful adventures writing that book. Many of them I couldn't put into the biography at the time because the tenor of the times simply didn't allow for it. We were far more discreet about private lives in those days. And so there was a lot of self-censorship on my part when I didn't include things that I did include in Parisian lives. And so I went along and um, I wrote the book. In the process, I found out a lot about myself. And this is what kept me from writing this book for 19 years, writing about myself. I had been a journalist, but I had never been a practitioner of new journalism. I had never put myself into anything I wrote. I kept myself scrupulously out of all of my news articles and even my feature stories when I was a journalist. And it was really, really hard for me to reveal myself. And that's why I kept backing away from the truth for 19 years. I would have had to tell about my insecurities and the things which I'm not very proud of, which tend to be rather embarrassing. And then again, through a member of the Institute, I found my voice. Margot Jefferson came to talk to us at the Women Writing Women's Lives Seminar, a seminar I co-founded 30 years ago with Carolyn Halbrin. Can't believe it was that long ago. But at any rate, Margot came to talk to us, and she said, what is the self that you want to reveal? And that was my problem. I didn't know what self I wanted to reveal. And Margot said, how do you find the self that allows you to write without asking for love and without asking for pity? Well, I had a very happy accident. As I was going through my old papers, 
looking for things that might come to mind, spring to mind, refresh my memory about the Beckett and Beauvoir years, I came upon something I had forgotten that I had. In Parisian Lives, I call them the Daily Diaries. The DD, I abbreviated it. And in the DD, I wrote capsule biographies of people I interviewed. I wrote about my feelings and my emotions. I wrote about things I liked, things I didn't like. I wrote about things I had to explore further before I could write about them. I even wrote about the mistakes I made, the things I wrote that I found out later. Thank God I found out before they hit print because they were totally wrong and they would have given the wrong idea of Beckett. And so I had the DDs to guide me. So that allowed me to present the self that I was in the 1970s and the 1980s as I wrote these two biographies. And it allowed me to comment from the perspective of the woman that I am today, the feminist that I have become, the scholar, the writer that I've become. It allowed me to stand back from that younger self and to comment upon her and to ask not for love and not for pity, just to say this is who she was and how she was. And so that rather freed me to be able to go forward. So that's how I wrote the book. As I said, the adventures are there. Then the book was published. Oh, <laughs> to this day, I can't read what I wrote about that. I couldn't write about it in the present tense. I had to quote from the Daily Diary. I called those people the Becketeers. <laughs> and any reference to Musketeers, you're welcome to take it. They were a group of men who were determined to sabotage my book. And this is what happened to the book after it was published. John Sturrock wrote the review in the New York Times. He called me buoyant, enviably resilient in my six hyperactive years when I pursued Samuel Beckett. Okay, he never met me, he never saw me, but okay. Buoyant and resilient are usually not words people use to describe me. <laughs> At any rate, Hugh Kenner weighed in with an insulting, unfocused, and silly diatribe in the Saturday Review. Ruby Cohn wrote a letter praising Richard Elman for his attack in the New York Review of Books, and by extension, all the other Becketeers who attacked the book. Elman, in his turn, attacked her, calling out all the errors she wrongfully tried to attribute to me. In his review, this is what Elman wrote. He said that I had managed a scoop in literary history that is like that of Woodward and Bernstein in political history. He said, I found in, and I quote, a shooting gallery, a big duck, a drake named Beckett, and she took aim and she brought him down. Elman insisted falsely that I wrote one letter and another letter and another to persuade Beckett to cooperate. His insinuation was clearly the same as John Sturrock's, one that I had been getting from any number of reporters who were interviewing me for features. It was probably best voiced by the late Mary Bull of the weekly Hamden, Connecticut Chronicle, when she asked straight out what every reviewer and interviewer from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon also felt free to ask. How many times did you have to sleep with Becca to get this scoop? It would seem that a woman could not be possessed of a brain, only a vagina. <laughs> However, <laughs> 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 
there were a lot of other writers who reviewed the book on its merits. And I'm happy to say it went on to win prizes. It's been translated into 18 languages and it's never been out of print. But praise of another kind came right here in this room from Orhun Pamuk, the Turkish novelist and Nobel Prize winner when he visited the Institute several years ago. When I met him, he told me that he had bought a copy of the book in Paris because it was banned in Turkey and he had to take great care to smuggle it into the country. And there he passed it around to all his literary friends who read it so closely that they shattered the binding and wore down the print on some of the pages. And by the time they had all finished their surreptitious reading, the pages were loose inside the cover. He told me it was the most revered study of Beckett in his country, and he thanked me for writing it. And I was so deeply moved that I had to go downstairs to the woman's room and compose myself. So anyway, two years passed. I couldn't write anything. I couldn't even write an evaluation of students in my classes where I was teaching. People came to me and asked me to write other biographies of themselves or others, and I just couldn't do it. I just said that was my one shot at biography, and I'm, I'm going to find something else to do. I'm never writing another biography as long as I live. One day, uh, my husband was a museum director, and he was in Boston for a conference, and my agent said, why don't you go to Boston because there's a guy at Little Brown, Dick McDonough, and he really wants you to write a book for him. And he, he's interested in having you write whatever you want. It doesn't have to be biography. And he'll give you a fabulous lunch, so you go to Boston and you, you meet Dick. So I did. He took me to a place called Maison Robert, which at that time was a marvelous French restaurant. It was a beautiful June day, and we're sitting outside and drinking good wine and chatting. And he's asking me to write another biography, and I'm, I'm refusing. I said, you know, I've become a feminist through writing about Beckett, and there's something I'd like to do. I'd like to write a book about women. We're in the 1980s now. I want to write a book about the condition of women, the situation of women, how they're trying to forge careers, have families, change gender identity, uh, go off on their own. So many things are happening in the lives of women, and that's what I want to write about. And he said, well, I want you to write about it through the life of a woman. He said, you know, there's no doubt you're a journalist. You can write that kind of a book, but people will really be interested in, in the life of a woman who represented many of the things you want to write about. And so we started throwing out names. Everybody from Joan of Arc to Ayn Rand, as I recall. <laughs> To this day, you know, we have this friendly, joshing argument, but I do believe he said it first, Simone de Beauvoir. It was like light bulbs going off in my head. Well, of course, she had everything. She had the perfect relationship. So I <laughs> With Jean-Paul Sartre, she was a genius in her writing and on and on and on. And how oh, could I not have thought of her? She's... The perfect example, well, here again, <laughs> I, I had uh, a good seven or eight years of learning uh, that that was not the case. So I wrote her a letter also. Uh, by that time, the book had been translated into French, and um, she said she had already read it, and she invited me to come over and see her. And some very interesting things happened. I discovered once I got there that, in effect, she and Beckett lived at opposite ends of the same street. 
He lived on the Boulevard Saint-Jacques. If you start at the Lyon de Belfort, that big statue in the middle of Boulevard Raspail, and you go sort of southwest, you hit Beckett's building. And if you go northwest, you hit Beauvoir's building. And it never failed that once I started writing about her, I would run into him. (laughs) And I didn't want to. I also discovered at this time that they cordially detested each other. She had been the editor of Jean-Paul Sartre's um, magazine, Les Temps Modernes, and Beckett had given her half a story when he was unknown, the first half of the story, and she printed it. And so several weeks later, he came along quite happily with the last half of the story. And she said, oh, we've had enough of your nonsense. (laughs) Take it away, we're not printing it. And he was so angry with her that if you look in his collected letters, volume three, you see the nasty letter he wrote to her. And so it was very awkward for me when I run into him writing about her. It was entirely different with her. Remember with him, I had to keep everything in my head. He would never let me write anything down. I would rush back to my hotel, my apartment, after I interviewed him. And I would talk into a tape recorder, and I would take notes, and I would be doing it for days on end, trying to capture exactly what he told me and how he said it and what the inflections in his voice were. So I get to Beauvoir's apartment, this tiny, tiny little lady. First time I saw her, it was almost like a cartoon. I'm looking straight out, expecting the tall woman, which she always looked like in her photos. And here was this tiny little thing which made me think how tiny Jean-Paul Sartre must have been because he was always shorter than she was in all the photos of the two of them together. And she was in a ratty red bathrobe, and she had a rag around her head. I called it the rag, but it was a turban. I got into the habit of calling it the ubiquitous rag. I never saw her without it. She told me she started to wear it during the war because they didn't have any shampoo and her hair was dirty. And she just liked it, so she kept it. We sat down, and she said, wonderful that you're going to write about everything. Women these days, they only want to write about my feminism, but I want to tell you everything. And so I'll talk. We'll each have our tape recorder. We will each record everything. You can take notes if you want to. And then we'll have the book. And I remember (laughs) putting my head into my hands and saying, oh, dear, I didn't work that way with Samuel Beckett. Well, how did you work with him, she said. And so I told her about the absolute glorious freedom he gave me, which now that I'm a seasoned biographer, I realize how extraordinary that was, what I asked him for, and how so many other of my biographer friends have never had such freedom to construct their texts. And so I told her, you know, I'm going to write my own book in effect. And she sat there for a long, long time, and I guess realizing how she and he did not like each other, she said, well, if you work that way with him, then I suppose you have to work that way with me. So their animosity worked in my favor, and I, again, had the same freedom to write that book that I had with him. She was very forthright. She was very honest. I asked her all sorts of difficult questions, and she answered every one of them, except she would get to a point, and I would know when it was coming, and I would call it the Lucite Curtain, which was going to come down, the very thick, clear, plastic screen 
that I was going to be able to ask questions and get thus far and no farther. She wasn't going to answer those questions. But I would go back. That's what I learned from journalism. Persistence. You go back. You keep asking the question. You find a different way to ask it. You wait. Eventually, you find out what you need to know. So the loose eye curtain would come down, but I would still get to know what I needed to know. And then came the most extraordinary thing of all. She died. I was just about finished with the full draft of the book. And my wonderful editor, Eileen Smith, is sitting right over there. Eileen and I joke that her first child and my book appeared at the same time. She was editing my last chapter when she was in labor. <laughs> wonderful dedication, Eileen. I had to rewrite the whole book. It took me almost another year because she was dead and the canon was final and it was finished and there wasn't going to be any new text come to light to change what I wrote. And I had to rewrite the text because now that she was dead, I had to be able to say, ah, here's a theme, here's an idea, here's something that carries through from early youth, shall we say, to old age. Eventually it did come out and um, the reception for it was um, really quite wonderful. There were some of the most extraordinary years of my life. My children grew up with these two books. They're adults now. They still roll their eyes at me when they remember some of the things, but they're both fluent in French because they had to live in Paris a lot. So <laughs> they like that part of uh, the adventure. So I'll stop here and take your questions and thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.